Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Matthew E. Kahn, the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Economics and Business at Johns Hopkins University and the director of Johns Hopkins' 21st Century Cities Initiative. Matthew is the author of Green Cities, Urban Growth and the Environment, and Climatopolis. His next book, to be published by Yale University Press, focuses on how urbanites and their cities are adapting to the threats of climate change. Not only is Matthew one of the world's leading economists, he's also a top thinker when it comes to understanding, in an intricate manner, urbanism and the environment. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Wanted to start with what's on the top of your mind at this moment? So, of of course, the events in the news and thinking about how cities will police going forward. It raises really challenging issues for social scientists. I'm an economist and I'm always thinking about trade-offs and Mm -hmm. what are the costs and benefits of the police? But this is relatively far from my recent research. But of course, as a concerned citizen, I'm thinking about it. Right. And your work primarily focuses on unpacking and studying urban growth and the environment through economics. How have you been thinking about COVID-19 in the context of the climate crisis? So what COVID-19 represents to me is Urban economists talk about the costs and benefits of density. So my son is at the University of Chicago, and he loves downtown Chicago with all the opportunities. And economists like Ed Glazer have celebrated in his book, The Triumph of the City, the joy of city life. Mm. Uh, But COVID-19 reminds us about pandemic risk of low probability events. Yes, Bill Gates was talking about this a few years ago, but pandemic risk was not on my radar screen and really was a punch in the jaw Mm. for all of us. But guys, I'm a believer that there's always a silver lining. In my new work, I'm arguing that a silver lining of COVID-19 will be that we will be better able to adapt to climate change. Mm. Given the hindsight we have now, although it's quite short, Do you agree with how the U.S. has been handling the shutdown? How do you think we'll recover from this? So on the first one, I'm a very risk-averse guy. And uh, Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, talked about known unknowns. And when the COVID-19 crisis broke out, I knew that I didn't know that we faced incredible challenges. And so at the local, state, and federal level, our leaders faced incredible trade-offs where we weren't able to inform them. Mm. When faced with unknown risk, what is good public policy? And so Mm. I held my tug and I wasn't brave enough to answer your question, but I'm also not a Monday morning quarterback. So can I let you ask that question again? (laughs) Um, I have been very quiet on what is good public policy here when you face these two uh, terrible trade-offs. I think Paul Romer Mm. made some great points about the importance of figuring out what share of people have the disease and who are super spreaders and how do we encourage these individuals to engage with fewer people because we can't shut down the economy forever. As an urbanist, I'm interested in the future of our cities post-COVID-19. I haven't really had much smart to say in the short run, and I know that I've been able to stay home because of the privilege of my position, which not everyone has. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so much connected to this moment right now, including these protests that we've been seeing the past couple weeks. How have you been viewing the protests, Black Lives Matter, and most of it's happening in cities, but how have you been thinking about all of these actions and policing as well in the past couple weeks? So I wrote a short blog post on the quality of organizations. So we're all part of organizations. I'm part of the economics department of the business school at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And an organization can be great due to selection effects of who initially joins the organization. And so you get into questions for those cops who are bad apples. And how did they get into the system? Were they born that way? Or did the culture, the incentives, and the organization itself turn some average guys into some much worse apples? And so mm. I've been trying to think about the microeconomics of how we build public trust and better institutions. And in the fancy language of economics, there's selection effects and there's treatment effects. Can we get more good apples into the police force in cities? Do we use social incentives or do we pay more? And then once these men and women join the organization, how do you create a, a, a culture and a set of norms that encourage excellence and mutual respect? And I hope that economists and sociologists can work together on this, of the microeconomics of how we build better public institutions. Mm. There's so much economic inequality also in this moment that's being brought to light and connected to that and a subject sort of more near and dear to you is the, the poor's inability to adapt to climate change and to deal with these large forces that are before us. So I'm wondering, what's your perspective on this? How do we deal with this economic inequality? How do we deal with uh, helping the poor when it comes to the climate crisis? So to unpack that a little, I've only been living in Baltimore for a year. And this challenge of persistent poverty you see it and you see the frustration in the community. And many of the urban poor in Baltimore are African-American. The challenge that economists have run into in thinking about how to reduce poverty is while there's many possible ways to reduce poverty, I come down to the Nobel laureate Jim Heckman's research agenda of high quality pre-kindergarten. Um, Professor Heckman, argues convincingly, learning begets learning, skill begets skill. Mm. And so that for children from disadvantaged families of how we raise early life skill in both a cognitive and non-cognitive skill to produce young adults. But Spencer, where the challenge arises is what we can do for young adults. And there, I think we need to create more jobs. I've been trying to work in Baltimore on why small business entrepreneurs have trouble launching their businesses. In this age of superstar firms, is Amazon going to come to Baltimore? Or are they just going to open warehouses in Baltimore? Mm. Could Amazon ever hire 10,000 high school graduates in Baltimore? And I think the answer is no. That in cities such as Baltimore and Detroit, the future of job growth has to come from small businesses. And so I hope that a silver lining of the George Floyd protests is beginning to think about why the American dream has been hard to obtain for certain segments of our population and how to unleash capitalism for this group. Mm. I continue to be an optimist about capitalism. And when I see the young people marching, it crosses my mind that they're skeptical about capitalism's ability to achieve the American dream. So to, to say that again, does the American dream still exist? And I think that many of us economists are in deep thought about that. Yeah, well, it, it evolves, doesn't it? 
I mean, the American dream is definitely changing. And the idea of what America is, is shifting. And I think what we're seeing in the protests is America as defined before is not the same as now. I agree with you. On a slight detour, that's why I'm so excited about the potential for Zoom technology, if more workers could use it. Mm. To build on your point, every person has their own conception of the good life. And America is functioning well if people can pursue through their own conception of the good life. And yet what we've run into with many cities, whether it's San Francisco or Seattle, our most productive cities have sky high real estate prices. The middle class have trouble living there. And so I've been very interested in before Zoom, this bundling of where we work and where we live and the potential for Zoom to unbundle these of mm. more freedom of where we live. This comes back to Andrew's point about personal freedom and of opening up more possibilities that um, to say something perhaps um, sugary, if, if there's more optimism about the American dream, does it almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy of, I think the onus is on optimists about capitalism to show that it does benefit everyone. And I think that there's a very healthy debate playing out. During times of protest, are we able to have reasoned debates? I hope the answer is yes. Your current project at Johns Hopkins University called the 21st Century Cities Initiative is going to leverage the urban big data revolution. And that's a, a very interesting idea. Can you help us understand what this is and how it will play out? So an example of a paper that we wrote in the fall said in Los Angeles, we had data on every day over the last five years in the city of Los Angeles. We knew the temperature outside and we knew what crimes were committed in what parts of the city. And so let me say two boring things and then one interesting thing. We documented that on hotter days that there's more crime. And we already knew that. We also documented that in poorer neighborhoods that there's more crime. And we already knew that. But guys, here was the interesting fact that got me into the New York Post. And my mother was impressed with that. We <laughs> documented that in the poorest neighborhoods in Los Angeles, when it was hot outside in the poorest neighborhoods, crime went up the most. So to mm. say that in proper English, in the poorest neighborhoods, the heat was associated with more crime than usual. And our story for this is in the poorest neighborhoods, people don't have air conditioning and they live in small, older housing and are in close physical proximity with each other. And so, guys, to come back to the climate change challenge, it has been argued by some excellent climate researchers that violence will go up in the future because of high heat. Our study shows that if the current correlations hold in the future, this is even more pronounced in the poorest neighborhoods. And guys, here comes the so what. If these areas could have access to air conditioning, have access to jobs, this could help to mitigate this correlation. A big theme of my work is that big data scientists like me are sort of a Paul Revere. If we can document a correlation, and understand it, that actually plants the seeds to adapt because we learn the costs we'll face if we don't make these adaptation investments, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and this idea of the urban big data revolution, what, what, what is that really? So it all depends. Let's come back to George Floyd. The police departments in many cities 
They allow you to get data on how much each officer earns in salary and overtime. But guys, did you know that the publicly provided data provide no information on which officers, of which ones are good and which ones are bad? There's no internal bureau investigation data. And so, Andrew, the point I'm raising is while I'm a good statistician, I can only make a cake with the ingredients I could get my hands on. And so if cities provide more information without violating the privacy of their employees, if cities can provide more information about their employees' patterns of behavior, we social scientists can pick out the bad apples. And this can help society. It creates accountability. It not only creates peer-reviewed papers, but that was a joke. More importantly, <laughs> it creates accountability. So, guys, I wrote a blog post about Serpico. Are you old enough to remember the Al Pacino movie Serpico? Of course. Of course. Recently rewatched it, actually. So there was no big data with, with Serpico. As I understood Al Pacino back, I think, in 1973, um, he was one of the lone good apples. And I think he got the crap beat out of himself. Yeah. As an urban big data scientist, I believe that there could have been more Serpicos and some of these bad apples would not have become fully bad apples had they known they'd be held accountable. So what my center is about is that in the urban big data revolution time, building on Steve Levitt's original Freakonomics work, there's ways to use data to see the hidden patterns out there and to hold people accountable. So Levitt and Brian Jacobs studied teachers who were cheating in Chicago and used test scores to, to identify them. In sort of a similar sense, big data scientists like me can detect who's suffering from climate change, which public officials are shirking on their job, and where accountability comes from. This is not Star Wars where there's good and evil. Through incentives, if Matt knows he can be fired if I don't do my job, that creates an incentive for me to reform, and it creates accountability in an organization. And at the end of the day, and I'll stop with Al Pacino at Serpico, I, it didn't look to me like a lot of the force was joining it. No. And, and to an economist, that was weak incentives within the organization and a lack of accountability. There weren't enough urban big data scientists back then. That's fascinating. So the program in part is focusing on supporting and strengthening Baltimore, right? So this is a very important point. One of the things the Nobel laureate Paul Romer has taught me through his work and through his own center is good ideas are public goods. If we have a good idea in New York, Mayor Mike Bloomberg piloted so many ideas when he was mayor. If we have a good idea in one city, can it be transplanted to another city? And yes, every city's different, but I believe that there's commonalities across cities. And so, Andrew, one of my jobs at the 21st Century Cities Initiative is to think about what's worked in other cities. If an idea's worked in Philadelphia, if an idea's worked in Detroit. For example, there was a study out of Philadelphia on better lighting at night and that that reduces crime, that these guys randomized where they lit up the streets. Uh, to an economist, there's a question of, does that displace crime to another part of the city where they don't have the lights? Uh, hopefully, it absolutely reduces crime. Yeah. But my example is, if something pilots well in Philadelphia, I want to use my nerdy mind, know about it, and propose to the next mayor of Baltimore, can we try this here? Right. Are, are there any programs outside of the earlier one you discussed with the small business programs that you're identifying as possible places of change for Baltimore? So my team has had lead on the brain. Um, we're working with Jessica Reyes of Amherst College. Jessica, when she was a PhD student at Harvard, argued that children exposed to high lead levels are more likely to commit crime when they're young adults because lead exposure lowers your IQ and is associated with attention deficit disorder. Mm. In our new work, 
with Jessica, we're taking a look at what is the correlation between lead exposure in the city of Baltimore and crime rates. And if this positive correlation, which we're finding, so in English, parts of Baltimore with high lead levels have subsequent high murder rates, we then want to think about the cost effectiveness of deleading these communities. And so it's connecting these. If we can learn what has hurt the American dream, we can then think about what it would cost to remediate those barriers. Mm. I wanted to bring up your work on the environment and specifically what in your mind makes up a green city? Tough question. Let me back that up and then I'll give you an answer. For about 25 years, I've been known as the green cities guy. That's been good for marketing. But let me explain why it's actually good urban economics. And I make the same recommendation to Baltimore city officials when they're willing to speak to me. In this footloose age, those cities that can attract and retain the skilled, they grow. So Ed Glazer and Enrico Moretti and their respective work have have argued that our most innovative cities, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, New York City, Boston, those cities that can attract and retain the skilled grow. And Detroit and Baltimore, in my opinion, have not grown as fast because they're not brain hubs. Those cities with great quality of life, including low crime, but to turn to green cities, cities with clean water. Baltimore's rediscovering its waterways. I'm living in a building in Harbor East that was a Superfund site. Past manufacturing cities can reinvent themselves. Pittsburgh has really reinvented itself. The puzzle is that it took so many years. Mm. So when a manufacturing city fades out, it can take decades for it to find its next groove. And guys, I've argued the same thing in China in my book, Blue Skies Over Beijing with Xi Jinping of MIT. Mm-hmm. China is making a transition from heavy factories to a brain economy. The brain functions better when it's exposed to less pollution. It raises your happiness. So guys, a big data example. We collected data on 3 billion tweets in China. So China doesn't have Twitter. They have something called Weibo. And we documented that on more polluted days in China, people express much more anger and sadness in terms of the linguistic content of their tweets. And so this was an example of how I have tried to study in a big data funky way the relationship between pollution and urbanites being unhappy. Mm. How are you thinking about that in the context of COVID-19? I mean, it's pretty fascinating, the shift in pollution. So as you know, a silver lining of COVID-19 is that pollution has fallen sharply. So some very good environmental economist, Steve Chikala at the University of Chicago Harris School, he's been studying how much electricity consumption is down in America's cities. And because power plants are polluting, as we consume less electricity and as we drive less, the air gets cleaner. Guys, here's the new paper I'm writing. And this is a little bit, um, we'll see if, I want to see if you like it. I can explain it in 15 seconds. (laughs) In many Chinese cities, they've never had clean air in the last 20 years. And a silver lining of the COVID-19 shutdown is they have clean air for the first time. 
Sichi and I are writing a new paper called Clean Air as an Experience Good. And we're going to argue in this paper that while China is not a democracy, when the citizens get a taste of blue skies and clean air, they're going to lobby their urban mayors to keep the blue skies. And so we're mm. delving into the communist five-year plans going forward to see in those cities where the air has improved the most because of the COVID-19 shutdown, do we see the most green? This can't be UC Berkeley stuff. These guys, I don't think all went to UC Berkeley. Uh, that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> As people experience clean air and see how much healthier their children are and their own health and mental mm. health and quality of life, do they demand from their local leaders a continuation of the blue skies? And so that's my best new paper on how COVID-19 could have long-run beneficial impacts on China's air pollution as the citizens lobby for more regulation. Mm. And and with that regulation, the trade-off will be explored as well. And what is that trade-off? You know, will their economy suffer? Are, are there real trade-offs that will affect them? So this is the key question. I'm teaching environmental economics at Hopkins this fall, and we will spend a month on Andrew's question. And so here's the story. In the old days, when the Chinese economy was based on coal and it was based on factories producing toys to, to export to the U.S., there was a very sharp trade-off. Because these factories were energy intensive, you burn the coal, you pollute the air, you create a couple of middle class jobs, but uh, it's very polluted. Because China is becoming a more educated nation and is transitioning to high tech and services, manufacturing is actually being pushed out of the major cities. And the trade-off that Andrew just pointed to is being attenuated. And so I believe the Chinese middle class can enjoy blue skies and green cities while still having a job. Mm. And returning back to the United States, I think Republicans have overstated the costs of environmental protection. California has a booming economy at the same time that it has all this environmental regulation. And while there are some crazed regulations in California, I think that the environmental regulations on net have made California a better place to live. And very rich people have created wonderful companies in California because of the great quality of life. So I would point to California as an example that there doesn't have to be a trade-off between economic growth and the environment. Yeah. How are you thinking about the limits of this growth when it comes to urban environments? Like how big is too big and what's actually a sustainable model for healthy urban living? So I've wrestled with this a lot. In my 2010 book, Climatopolis, I discussed work by climate scientists who are worried that in a world with much less rain in the Southwest, that there could be drought and water shortages. So guys, as a University of Chicago trained economist, I believe we need more markets. What markets do is they send price signals. So guys, from basic supply and demand, if there's much less rainfall because of climate change, then the price of water should rise. The way we achieve sustainability is by letting prices signal scarcity. If the southwest of the U.S., in Phoenix and Las Vegas, if there's no more rain, the price of water has to go up, and then people will pull the grass out from their front yard. They'll shower once every two days. We'll see a bunch of these small ball adaptations, but they'll only make those substitutions if the price of water rises. If farmers in California face a price of zero, basically, for water, they're going to keep growing alfalfa, which is kind of a crazy thing to do, given how water intensive it is. So, Spencer, you asked the key question 
question. And uh, I'm a tough Chicago economist. I'm going to say we need even more markets. We need more price signals such that rational people and firms will make the right choice. Spike Lee had that movie, Do the Right Thing. In the middle of desert conditions, people will do the right thing if they're exposed to scarcity signals. Mm. What are some of the most pressing, I guess, environmental consequences of this market-driven growth that we've seen over the past couple decades, really? So greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise. Jared Diamond wrote this piece that if every person on the planet achieved the American dream, that this would have huge greenhouse gas implications. And he's right if we don't have a market for releasing greenhouse gas emissions. I fully support a carbon tax that you pay per ton. The Nobel laureate William Nordhaus said we should be paying $35 per ton of CO2. So guys, if we had a price on greenhouse gas emissions, Greta Thunberg would be much happier with world economic growth. She raises fair questions about how much greenhouse gases will be released in an economy with more people and more income if we don't have an incentive to economize on greenhouse gas emissions. You've written that as income grows, consumption and production patterns become increasingly green while the prospects for greener governance improve. Can you explain this a little bit to us? Two examples. As I walk the streets of Berkeley, where my wife grew up and where her mother lives, I see a Tesla on every other house and solar panels everywhere. What interests me is most people's income grows because they have more human capital and education. And where I think the real pathway is, is more educated people are more likely to be environmentalists, be more patient about the future, better able to understand the nuances of complex issues like climate change. So as people grow richer, that's sort of bundled with more education, and we see a greater demand for higher quality products. And part of that is the greenness of these products. So the Tesla, I've never heard Elon Musk um, say, buy my car because it's a green car. But if that electric vehicle's power comes from renewable power, like wind or solar panels, Elon Musk is selling a very expensive, very green machine. He's a multi-billionaire. There's huge demand for this product among the rich. It is also the case that as a city grows richer and more educated, it's more willing to enforce environmental regulation because many environmental regulations reduce our risk exposure. So in our book about China, we argue that the rich Chinese cities like Shanghai on the East Coast are ramping up their regulations because this nation wants to protect their children and improve the adult quality of life. And so you've put your finger on a key issue. As we grow richer, We consume more, but we consume higher quality stuff. So guys, a half joke there. When I teach this to first year students in college, I talk about Elvis Presley when he recorded Hound Dog. As Elvis got richer and richer, did he just scale up his consumption of hamburgers or did he move up to higher quality consumption? And so economists focus on this quantity quality trade-off and many young environmentalists associate consumption with quantity, but that this quality effect can often bring about environmental benefits, like with the Tesla example. Right. Slight diversion, but I was curious what role you think the private sector plays in improving our cities, because we speak a lot about the federal government at the state level, but how do you think, and and related to what Elon Musk is, is doing, how does the private sector play into moving forward? 
So I want to start in my Baltimore because uh, this is an issue that I've been thinking a lot about. For Baltimore's middle class to grow and for more minority young people to achieve their full potential and their dreams, we need more private sector job growth in cities such as Baltimore. And so uh, before we were talking about entrepreneurship, minority entrepreneurship, a concern I have is, guys, do you remember the recent bidding for Amazon HQ2 and each of these cities going wild with their bids? Very well. Smart economists have argued that there's a winner's curse. What winner's curse is, is that the winner of an auction where we don't know the value of the object overpays. So if there's 100 cities bidding for Amazon HQ2, the winning bidder is likely to overpay because it's the average of their bids that's actually a much better estimate of what the value of the asset is. And so I'm not a fan of cities like Baltimore and Detroit buying talent, of sort of bidding for Kevin Durant. Instead, I have a model in my head of building their own talent up, of nurturing Mm -hmm. small businesses and a more organic piece. Because uh, to say something tough, in a city like Baltimore, the city itself is the major employer, and that creates an enormous budget deficit. Mm -hmm. So people need work. In this age of robots, Kurt Vonnegut had that book, Player Piano. What's the future of work for middle-class people? They can't all work for the public sector. We need private sector jobs, and we have to reward entrepreneurs with a a set of tax policies and rules of the game such that they can acquire land and capital to create viable firms to hire young people. Mm. And so a big part of my center at Johns Hopkins has been about how to unleash capitalism, how to unleash the private sector to help people enter the middle class as workers at those firms. Well, connected to that slightly is, you know, I was curious how your upbringing in New York City in the 70s, which was such a different time, affected your current understanding of cities and their potential for change. So my biography will interest no one, but it's on point. It interested us enough to ask. (laughs) (laughs) In the early 1970s, New York City was a tough town. My father can't believe what would have been his return on real estate had he purchased 1970s real estate. Donald Trump had amazing timing to have been investing in real estate at that time. And my father, if you had told him circa 1974, what would be the value of Manhattan real estate in the year 2020, could not have believed it. And so what has anchored Manhattan's comeback is the rise of finance. Manhattan has reinvented itself many times by being a very attractive place for skilled people. So it reinvented itself after the 1950s when manufacturing declined, and it continues to reinvent itself. My Baltimore has been slower to reinvent itself in the aftermath of its manufacturing declining. Mm. When it comes to real estate development, connected but still separate question is the mortgage crisis. And I'm curious, do you see an impending mortgage crisis in the near future? And what should we be worried about most economically as we head into this second half of the year? So I have a new book coming out from Yale University Press called Adapting to Climate Change. And at the back end of the book, my editor let me have one chapter on my proposed rules of the game to better help us to adapt. And guys, I argue that I don't want there to be any more home ownership. When we own a home, we're making a bet on a very specific place. We're making a bet on a city, a neighborhood, and a particular home. And folks, we're amateurs. 
when we pick these assets. To adapt to climate change, a known unknown, when we don't know what risks we face in the future, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's health shocks, whether it's marital instability, whether it's shocks to local labor markets, you want more flexibility. So guys, my proposal, and I'll come back to mortgages in a second, is if we were all renters, we could hold a diversified portfolio and have much better ability to get up and go if the place we live in is shocked. Mm. An example, my friend Rick Hornbeck wrote a paper about the impacts of the Dust Bowl, and he found that for those who could leave the affected Dust Bowl region, they did pretty well. But if you were stuck in the Dust Bowl, it it took this place a long time to get back on its feet after the shock. Mm. And so in a world where we're facing more volatile punches, I think we can't have place-based routes. We have to have the option to get up and go. But back to mortgages. Most Americans have been purchasing their homes, so so like 60% of Americans own a home, they've been purchasing it with perhaps 25% down and a 75% loan. What this means is that they hold an option to default on that loan. Banks are no dummies, especially in this big data age. If I worked at a bank and I was worried about defaults, I would do two things. I would charge higher interest rates for loans uh, to have this risk premium, and I would require a lower loan-to-value ratio so that borrowers have more skin in the game. Now, where you're right is where we could have a mortgage foreclosure issue is if the economy doesn't come back up. We haven't talked about V-shaped recoveries. In a very important piece of work completed in 2008 by economists at the Fed of Boston, they argued that people default on their mortgages when two conditions hold. If people are unemployed and if they have negative equity in their home. So an example, if my home is now worth $250,000, but my mortgage is $300,000, and if I'm unemployed, these guys are highly likely to default on their mortgage. And so COVID-19 For these non-essential workers who lost their jobs, if they remain unemployed and if they're homeowners, you're absolutely right that they're at risk to default and that that can set off a domino effect. And I think that there hasn't been enough discussion of that. Mm. What's your greatest hope as we emerge from this pandemic and this, this challenging moment we find ourselves in? I want to talk about people and I want to talk about places. A city like Baltimore can actually benefit from post-COVID-19. If there's the belief that New York City is too dense, a city like Baltimore can have sort of the Goldilocks effect, that it is an underappreciated city. There's negative stereotypes perhaps associated with the wire, associated with Baltimore. As people are now a little bit afraid of New York City, young people might take a second look at cities like Baltimore and think about whether that's the right place for them to live. So for places, I think that Baltimore has underperformed in recent years relative to Washington, D.C. and Philly, and that it may get a second look for those who want urbanism, but not the denseness, if that's a word, of Manhattan. For people, I'm going to come back to the protests in George Floyd I see that many young people do not believe that the American dream exists. And I think people my generation, age 55, have taken it for granted that it does exist. And it's been a bit of a wake-up call for me. I, on Twitter, follow a large number of diverse voices. 
And I'm seeing that after the election in November, we will have a respectful discussion and thinking about new rules of the game for what would be an America that's both fair, but also unleashes capitalism for everyone. That is my hope because reforms are coming. Right now, we're talking about disbanding the Minnesota police. That's an important question. But to an economist, I think even more important are what are reforms that would build up our middle class and empower all groups? Because these are very scary days. Mm. Um, I have an 18-year-old son, and I'm very optimistic about him. But for the first time in my life, I'm confused about the future for the next generation. And I'm trying to think about these issues. And while the economics profession is viewed as conservative, it's sort of stodgy, I want you guys to know that within the profession, there's an active, honest discussion going on, like Rob Johnson at INET. Uh, some very interesting issues are being discussed, and we're being scientific here about these issues. So I actually think that this is an exciting time, but these ideas are exciting because these are such scary days. Mm. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. It was Great to speak with you. Thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.